Luke chapter 9. When teams in the National Basketball Association draft new players out of college or high school each year, these new players fall into one of two categories, generally. Only a select few of the players are what we might call marquee players, athletes who are so good that they'll have an immediate impact upon their team. They might even in their rookie year bring their team into the playoffs. The vast majority of draftees fall into the second category. They're referred to affectionately as projects. With good coaching, lots of hard work, a fortuitous turn of events here and there, these players have the potential to become contributors to an NBA team someday in the future. But from the moment of their entrance into the league, they are works in progress. It should be encouraging to us to realize as Jesus Christ drafted his disciples, every last one of them was a work in progress. It should be encouraging to us that from draft day, they were projects. There was not a superstar among them. There was not one who was an immediate impact player. It was going to take a lot of coaching, fine coaching. It was going to take a lot of diligent effort and patience to hone this ragtag bunch into a group of men who could make a difference in this world. Do you not find these thoughts encouraging? If you have saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have certainly come to realize by now that you too are a work in progress. How deeply I sense this reality. There reverberates in my soul a deep groaning that agonizes over my deficient state of spiritual progress. I sense it every day of my life. I fall so short as a pastor, and I know it. I fall so short as a husband, as a father, as a relative, and a friend, and a citizen, and a neighbor. I fall so short as a man of God. The older I get, the more that I learn about who God is, the smaller I feel. And the more aware I become of my shortcomings. Maybe like an NBA player, I'd really like to be taller. I'd really like to be able to jump higher. I'd really like to be able to shoot better. I'd really like to be able to make that great impact, but I just don't have it. I'm a work in progress. Now this, frankly, is not a theme that we've seen in the book of Luke up to this point in time, is it? 
I mean, when it comes to the disciples, we've seen them make a few foolish decisions from time to time, but we've really not seen much about the weaknesses of the disciples. They were chosen back in chapter 6 and verse 12. Jesus just calls their name. Out of all of his disciples, these 12 are chosen as the ones he drafts them, so to speak, onto his team this day. Then if you remember chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 of Luke, he sends them out on this tremendous mission. He calls the 12 together. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And they go out and they do just that. These great men of God who accomplished so much for Jesus and so much in his power. And then we come to chapter 9 and verse 18 and we see this confession. Once when Jesus was praying in private, His disciples were with Him and He asked, who do the crowd say that I am? They give the answer. But, verse 20, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered for the disciples, you are the Christ of God. This deep insight and tremendous realization that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one that God has prophesied through the centuries. You are the Christ. And then, where have we been? Last week, as we looked at this text of Scripture, we're with the disciples three of them on the top of this mountain where Jesus himself is transfigured. The glory that is his shines through him. The glory that will be his throughout eternity shines through Jesus there. And Moses and Elijah are brought back by God from the dead and they are there conversing with Jesus. And here are three of the disciples witnessing this this situation and, and we'll make some allowances for Peter's fearful, confused statement. But we have seen in the life of the disciples some great men, actually in fact not a whole lot said about them. But as Jesus and Peter and James and John descend from the mountaintop where Jesus was transfigured, Luke permits us now to see these disciples were all works in progress. They were projects. And Jesus was going to have to do an awful lot of work with them in the few days that remained. In verses 37 through 50, we find four scenes here in which the disciples demonstrate themselves to be a work in progress. Four scenes which expose their spiritual shortcomings. And I think that is the theme that ties these scenes together. The first scene, we see that the disciples were weak in faith. They lacked faith. Verse 37. Luke chapter 9 and verse 37. The next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Now look, we need to camp here just for a moment. He comes down from the mountain. The great Renaissance artist Raphael's last painting was called The Transfiguration, a work that he completed in Rome in 1520. This classic work captures two scenes in one. He pictures the Mount of Transfiguration where Christ is in glory there and we see Peter, James, and John pinned to the ground in fear as the light from Christ's glory shines down upon them. But Raphael also pictures, and I think very wisely as he studied this passage, the scene at the foot of the mountain. And there the background is all black darkness and on that against that backdrop are the disciples debating 
with the rabbis. And there is a young boy standing there with his father with only the whites of his eyes showing, showing a demented look. This demon-possessed boy that we read about earlier in Mark chapter 9. So we have the great glorious experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, but now the disciples walking down the, the mountainside with Jesus are brought back into the real world where there is contention that is taking place down there at the foot of the mountain. They have enjoyed the ultimate mountaintop experience. The night sky was lit up with the glory of Jesus. God's mysterious presence hovered over the mountain and God spoke from the cloud. But as the party makes its way down, they descend into an environment of spiritual darkness. At the base of the mountain, the nine are entangled in this argument with the rabbis. There is a young boy here who they are not able to heal. Luke skips a lot of these details that we find in Mark and which we read earlier. But let's look now at what takes place and what is awaiting them as they come down from this mountain. Verse 38, a man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely leaves him and is destroying him as... The account in Mark says he gnashes his teeth. The demon at times throws him into the fire and into the water. Any parents out there, put yourself in this spot. This is a horrifying scene. There's nothing that you can do to preserve your child from this horror. But then he adds these very troubling words, verse 40. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. The other accounts put this man on his knees before God, before Jesus here, begging him as he begged the disciples, but they could not. Remember chapter 9 and verse 1. Jesus invests the disciples with the power to drive out demons, but they can't do it. We note from Mark chapter 9 and verse 29 that the reason is their lack of dependence upon God. It is not that they don't have the power. It's not that they don't have the authority. It's God's power and God's authority. The problem is, is that they lack faith. They do not sufficiently depend upon God to deal with this particular demon. And so they fail. And Jesus is grieved by their failure, verse 41. Oh, believing and, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? They're pretty strong words, aren't they? Bring your son here. How long shall I put up with you? Now the text does not really say whom Jesus is addressing here. He uses language that Moses used in reference to rebellious Israel. That would have been clear to those who hear. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 5. You twisted generation. It's the idea of perversion. They're twisted. They're morally corrupt. They're unbelieving. How long shall I put up with you? It's likely that Jesus is looking at the whole scene before him. The griping rabbis. The unbelieving father but perhaps most of all, the ineffective and unbelieving disciples that are there with him, having spoken so recently with a glorified Moses, who in his lifetime was able to split the Red Sea through God's power, 
having just spoken with the glorified Elijah, who in his time, through God's power, was able to call down fire from heaven. Here Jesus comes now among these projects who have failed to cast out a demon in his power. And Jesus says, how long will I be among you unbelieving and crooked people? It's very strong words. And I believe that they are directed primarily at his disciples. They are the ones who have failed here, as the longer count of Mark bears out. Well, he says, bring your son here. Verse 42, even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. So violent was this exorcism that the crowd thought the boy had actually died. But Jesus lifts him up by the hand and restores him to health. And the response is that they're all amazed at the greatness of God. This word greatness might be better translated at the majesty of God. And I say that because in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, Peter talks about the time on the mountain where he saw Jesus transfigured. And he says there, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Same word that is used here. In other words, there was majesty on the mountain as Jesus was transfigured, and there's majesty here as he casts out this demon. The glory that lit up the night sky on the mountaintop was the same glory that now lit up the spiritual darkness at the base of the mountain. And Peter saw the majesty and glory of Christ in, in, at the top and also here at the base, as did the crowds, and they all marveled at Jesus. Now what Luke does not tell us here is that Jesus steals away with his disciples back into Galilee at this point. The Galilean ministry is essentially over. It has answered the point of who Jesus is, and now Jesus seeks from this point on to find space between himself and the crowds so that he can spend time with these disciples and build them up and encourage them. The Galilean ministry is over. And that exodus that Moses and Elijah had talked about in chapter 9, verse 31, is not far off. Jesus has his work cut out for him as he prepares the disciples. Now Luke says nothing about the change of location, and I think does so probably, primarily, or at least in some respect, to emphasize the popular response to Jesus with what he now says about himself. They were amazed at what took place. Luke now moves very quickly to what Jesus says in a different location sometime later. But we find here a second scene in which the disciples fall so short as they show here a lack of comprehension of God's will and purpose. The second part of verse 43 says, While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did. Now again, remember, Luke is not even telling us that they've left this place and have gone on. So he's purposely trying to get us to see people are marveling, people are amazed at the power of God. Verse 44, Jesus says to his disciples, verse 44, listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Remember verse 35 
of this chapter, back up on the mountain, as God speaks. Chapter 9, verse 35, what did God say to the disciples? What did he say as he spoke out of the cloud? This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Listen to him. Now we come back to verse 44 and we see Jesus saying, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. I am going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Jesus said that, did he not, earlier? Chapter 9 and verse 22. He said there, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus has already made this prediction. He's already told the disciples that he will die. But he repeats it here again. I am going to be betrayed. I'm going to die. Their response in verse 45 is that they do not understand. Now Luke goes very gently on the disciples at this point. But we do know, as we look at the other context, how we should even understand Luke here. And that is not to commend them or to say that they are simply missing the point. They are not stupid. They're not suffering from an overbuildup of earwax. It's not that they can't hear what Jesus is saying. He, nor has a demon sprinkled some kind of pixie dust on them. So they hear the words and they just don't translate. They know what the words mean. What they can't figure out is how to take them. And that is, they understand the sense, the plain sense of what Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. Matthew 17, verse 23 says that these words filled them with grief. So don't get the idea here when it says that they do not understand, that they're just clueless. He says words that are very simple and they just cannot comprehend what he's saying. It's not just that. But there's a grief that sets in which indicates that they do understand the meaning of the words, but they don't understand the big picture. Jesus would later hold them morally responsible in this book, Luke 24 and verse 25. He will hold them morally responsible for not understanding what he was saying. You were so dull to not comprehend what the Old Testament was saying about my death, he tells them. Now that again is not, you're so dull, you're stupid. You're C-minus, D-plus students at best. Now he probably could have said that, and he could say that to all of us. But that's not what he means. What he means is, my agenda did not fit into your agenda, and so you could not understand it. They were filled with grief, and it says here that they were thus afraid to ask him about it. God was saying something to them that they didn't really want to deal with. It was something that filled their heart with grief and with concern, and they were so worried about it, they didn't even want to ask any more questions. You've been there, haven't you, disciple of Jesus? You've been there sometimes when he's saying something and you don't want to hear it because it just doesn't fit with the way that you believe life should work. And it scares you. They did not understand because they would not understand. They were afraid to even consider the implications. 
They are clearly a work in progress. They have clearly time to go yet in Jesus' school of training that will bring them to the place where they realize that the will of God is to be our heart's desire, whether it's easy or hard. Scene three. This same group lacks humility, amazingly. Verse 46, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Almost every commentator that I've read on this passage says this is a good proof that these New Testament accounts are authentic. They weren't just written by the disciples later to make Jesus look better than he was and to show them to be great leaders that the church, the early church, should follow. There might be a point there. This puts the disciples in a horrible light. They're bickering and fighting with one another as to who's the greatest. The dispute took place while the disciples were walking to Capernaum with Jesus. Having entered a house there, Jesus asked the disciples what they were talking about, and they were very embarrassed. Luke, again, skips over those details, I think, to do again what he has been doing here. That is to link what happens now with what precedes. Jesus has spoken of dying. The disciples are speaking of reigning. He speaks of his humble suffering They debate their prominence in the kingdom. The disciples believe this, and we need to catch this. Their relationship with Jesus will secure for them a prominent place in the kingdom, and they're debating with one another what their rank will be, what rank they are going to assume. It's a pretty petty, selfish, small debate. There's certainly a work in progress, and Jesus rolls up his sleeves and gets down to work as the coach. And says, verse 47, knowing their hearts, that is discerning, uh, better than thoughts, knowing their hearts, knowing and discerning what they are thinking, he took a little child and had this child stand beside him in front of the disciples. Now in this culture, let's just add this thought, children, and that's true with us too, I think, to a degree, children are cute. We do not think of them necessarily as great, as someone who can gain status for us, unless, of course, Hollywood gets a hold of your child, then that might be a different thing. But children don't bring status to us. They're not great in that sense. They are loved, but we do not link up with them to gain notoriety and prominence and stature. That's not the place of children. They're not at that place yet in life. Gentlemen, gentlemen, says Jesus, as he puts this child before them, and as Mark says, even takes this child in his arms. So this is a fairly small child, apparently. He takes this child in his arms, and he says, verse 48, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the greatest. I believe we could work through what Jesus has said here for a very long time and never get to the bottom of all of it. But I think a couple of ideas at least we could discuss here this morning. First, Jesus is saying something along these lines. 
Greatness is not determined by the status of those who welcome you into their company. Greatness is determined by who you are willing to welcome into your company. Did, did any of you see the Star Tribune picture of the Timberwolves, uh, whatever the place is called, the Target Center? It was right on, the, I think, the front page here in the last couple days, and it had little circles of where all the great Minnesotans sit. In the, and, and that's kind of fun, you know, as you go at Star Watch or something there, I guess. But th- this is where they sit. This is their, their place. It just is part of the way that we think of life, because to be invited to sit next to one of those great people would give us status and would be a great thing. We think in those terms. Jesus takes the whole thing and turns it absolutely upside down and says, greatness is not based on who welcomes you into their company. If you welcome and draw into your company those who have no status, that is true greatness. Because the least among you all is the greatest. Hughes says it this way, Greatness is not merely the possession of those who associate with the great. Rather, it is the gift of God to those who receive and serve the lowly. And says Jesus, you welcome the Father by welcoming me. And you welcome me by welcoming the least among you. So gentlemen, you were there today on the road debating who was the greatest, and you were thinking in terms of who has the closest connection to me, the king of the kingdom. You have it all wrong. Greatness is welcoming the vulnerable and the weak and those with no status. You should have been busy receiving one another, not debating with one another who's the greatest. They were a million miles away from the Jesus that Paul said laid aside his reputation as God and took on the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of man, humbling himself to come to earth to die. That's greatness. Not who welcomes you into their company, who you welcome into yours. That's what Jesus did when he, as the creator God, came to earth and took on our sin and our plight. That's greatness. There's still a work in progress, and they're going to be for a long, long time until they meet the Lord, but we enter one more scene where the disciples lack grace. Verse 49, Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. The Greek text says that we kept on trying to stop him. It seems to be a repeated action there, because he is not one of us. Or literally, he is, does not follow us. We know nothing about this what one calls successful freelance exorcist. 
His success does not guarantee that he's a genuine follower of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount? These people who come to before God and say, did we not cast out demons in your name? And God says, I never knew you. Depart from me. So it doesn't guarantee that he's necessarily a follower of Christ. There's apparently no reason, however, to doubt his genuineness. And so Jesus says in verse 50, do not stop him. Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. The issue is this, John sees an exorcist who is not one of us, not following us. Jesus sees a man who is assaulting the realm of Satan. John looks and judges the man on how he relates to John. Jesus judges the man on how he relates to evil. That's a good principle to follow. Not on how the person relates to you as you follow God, but on how the person relates to evil. We must exercise great caution here, I think, in application of this point, and many apply this very uncarefully and draw some very broad conclusions from this, essentially saying that we should work with all people who name the name of Christ, period. And that's the end of the thought. I think, I think that's being far too simplistic with the application here because Jesus said some other things. He didn't just say this about people. But we, we must exercise caution. Jesus is not condoning non-Christian exorcists. The man does act in Jesus' name. We must also remember chapter 11 and verse 23 where Jesus says this, He who is not with me is against me. We have to let Jesus say both things. He who is not with me is against me. So Jesus is not expressing here a sort of ecumenical, I'm okay, you're okay notion where anyone can do anything in the name of Jesus and we just all love each other. If Jesus met this man, he would say to the man, he who is not with me is against me. But Jesus is not talking to this man, is he? He's talking to John and to the disciples. Jesus is attacking here an attitude of spiritual competitiveness, a party spirit among rival servants of God. A party spirit among rival servants of God. Those words shouldn't really go together, but they do. I think we could put it this way. The test that Jesus wants everyone to apply to themselves is this. He who is not with me is against me. If you are not with Jesus, he's telling you you're against him. The test that Jesus wants his followers to apply to others is to assume those who claim to walk with Jesus do until that assumption proves wrong. And if there is an assault on evil, an assault on darkness, we need to let those servants speak to their master. And be thankful for people who are doing the job against evil. But what Jesus certainly does commend here is a gracious rather than a competitive spirit toward others. Well, this is a very different picture than we've gained on the part of the disciples. And that is in part because Luke, in, in, in Christ's ministry... Luke is here beginning to describe now a change in the work of Christ as he draws out to the end of his life. He is going to be working the disciples over. They need a lot of coaching. They need a lot of discipleship training. 
And that will become more and more theme as we see their weaknesses and their failures. Every one of Jesus' disciples was a work in progress or worse. Unbeknownst to the others at this time, one disciple was a tool in the hand of Satan. But each of the 11 others was a work in progress. They were projects. And in this short section of Scripture, they display a lack of faith in God's power. They display an unwillingness to grasp the purposes of God. They want things a certain way. And when God does not perform accordingly, their faith is shaken. We see a competitive nature. Competitiveness sours their relationship with one another. Competitiveness feeds a superior spirit with regard to others. They are a work in progress. I think there's two things that we certainly learn from this. First of all, is a challenge for us to grow. Have we not sensed in ourselves as followers of Christ, as those who long to be His people, have we not sensed some of these same weaknesses in us? I think we'd miss the passage entirely if we just said those weak disciples and don't see that this is us too. We too are lacking faith, aren't we? We are timid. We're an untrusting lot of people. God has given us His authority to go into the world and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has given us by His Spirit love and grace and wisdom and truth, and we're afraid. We're timid. We're intimidated by an evil world that seems bigger than God to us at times. We lack confidence in the power of God working in and through us. So there is so much that we don't accomplish in assaulting the realm of Satan because we respect it too highly and we depend too little on the power of God. That's us. We're a work in progress too. And do we not too also fail to comprehend the purposes of God, particularly when things don't work out the way we think they should? When we love God and seek to serve God, and yet He takes us down a path of suffering and pain and disappointment, are we not there tempted too? To put our fingers in our ears and say, I don't want to hear that, God. I've done the things I believe I'm supposed to do, and you're supposed to come through and bless me. And I don't want to go through this. We find that weakness in us. We find the will of God laid out before us, and there are times when we say, I don't like it because we've not yet come to understand how God rules. And we too struggle with pride. Who is the most important is something that does matter to us much more than we would ever let on and much more than we probably even know. Who is most important? Whose kids are the best kids? Whose service is the best service? Whose time and percentage of money investment in God's work is most commendable? Who is most godly? These are evil thoughts that we must keep at bay. 
as we learn to walk in humility. And we struggle, too, to walk the line between discernment and grace and not hold an exclusivist spirit with respect to others who are not in our camp but who are serving God well. This does not mean we throw out all discernment, but it means that we couple discernment with grace. And realize that God will factor a lot of things out in heaven that we can't factor out here about motives and about false practices and false beliefs of his people. We can leave that with God to take care of it. But as we exercise discernment, and I think rightly so, say that there are some things that matter and there are some things that don't, as we make, uh, try to uh, exercise that discernment, we must couple it with grace. Not everyone sees it the way that we see it. If you see it rightly, thank God, because that's a gift from Him. We struggle, as they did. But I want to go a second direction here. That's what we should get from this. This is us, too. But I think we should be very encouraged, because... The one that this passage and these accounts really reflect is is the Lord. And I think of the passage in Philippians chapter 2, and I'd invite you to turn there so that we could set our eyes on it again, because it is needed, I think, in a context like this, or at least very helpful and fruitful to our discussion. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. This is the thought that comes to mind as we consider Jesus working with his disciples and Jesus working with his people now on this side of the cross. Therefore, Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's saying these believers aren't complete. There's growth that needs to take place. And so they're to work out, they're to exercise out their salvation with fear and trembling. And here's the encouraging word, verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Isn't that a great word? It is God who is at work in us to want and to do what he wants. Remember that when you get spiritually discouraged with your weaknesses and your failures, that God is at work in you. If you know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, if you are walking with him in faith, he is at work in you. Remember that when you look at your brother or sister in Christ, that God is at work in them. That He is by His grace doing a work to change them and to bring them forward in His mercy. We need to remember this when there are other believers who are so disappointing to us. We need to remember this Husbands and wives, as you look at your husband or wife, who by God's grace knows Christ as Savior and is indwelt by the Spirit of God, we need to remember this, that He is at work in your husband or your wife. 
We need to remember this, that He is at work in our children's lives, in our relatives' lives, in our neighbors and friends that know Christ as Savior. And He is at work presenting His gospel truth even to those who are not saved. We must remember that God is at work in us. And we need to give one another that grace to realize that He's doing things in people's lives. This does not mean we throw out the idea of confronting sin. It does not mean that we just take on an I'm okay, you're okay type of environment. That would also be disobedient to God's Word, which calls us to hold one another faithfully accountable to walking with Christ. But what it does mean is that there should be a spirit of grace that pervades between us and others to know that some people are struggling along on the journey, but that God nonetheless is at work in them. And to know that the brightest lights spiritually on this earth are also works in progress. I hope that we can take that from this place today. That we fall short of what we ought to be. That we are sinners before the throne of an almighty and holy and perfect God. But that that same God is doing a work in us. If it wasn't for that truth, I would give up all hope. But I want you with me in prayer now to cling to that hope that He is doing a work. He took these 11 and He turned them into men who turned the world upside down for Christ. I don't know exactly what He will do with you and with me and what He desires, but we can know that this same God is at work in us as well. Let's thank Him for it in prayer. Our Father God, we gather before you here and may we just, in a word of speaking, lay down before you our sins. And lay down with those sins also the weaknesses and the lack of maturity that we have as we interact with people, as we have as we respond to your word the weaknesses that we possess as we fail to be the people that You would have us to be and fail to trust Your power in this world to change people. God, we lay them down, as it were, before Your feet and we say, here is who we are. We acknowledge in humility that we fall short of Your glory. But God, will you now, by the mercies of Jesus, comfort us in our weakness and teach us again that Jesus is at work in our lives as believers. That he is doing a work, that he is producing the fruit of the Spirit in us. That you are transforming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We don't always see it. 
But I pray, God, that by faith we would trust it and know that this is the work you're doing. And I look out among these people that are here today and I see some that it seemed to be at the very beginning stages of their faith journey and I see others who have been saved for more years than I've been alive. I've walked the road for a long time. We're at different places in time, and I also know, God, that it's very true that we're at different places in our spiritual maturity. Some have fairly sprinted along the path, and others have taken a winding and slow, plodding way. We don't know how our progress as pilgrims is laid out according to your providential design, (coughs) sovereign purposes. But I ask that we'd all remember as your people, that we are in fact walking on a journey and that at the end of the road is the face of Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that you'll encourage us with this. There may be some of us here who are struggling with sin in such a manner that they are about to give up hope. I pray, God, that you'll draw them to yourself. There may be some among us even who have not yet come to the place where their sins have been forgiven. They have not yet come to a place of saving, transforming faith in Jesus Christ. I pray, God, for such a person or those among us who that might fit. I ask, God, that you'll draw them to the light today and open their eyes to see what they cannot see so that you would fill them with your glory and begin this project in them. God, bring it about. And may we, as a faltering, halting people, Learn to trust your grace in the lives of each other and the lives of ourselves, that we would find hope in this hour and take from here the joy in our heart that you are transforming us. We thank you for what you're doing. We rejoice in it, and we want to give glory now to your name. Through Jesus, I pray. Amen.